for July 28th, 2014. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 317. He seems older and wiser and less half of an animal. Welcome to the Overthinking a Podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From Los Angeles, I'm Matt Rather, mere, mere hundreds of miles from Comic-Con. Uh, that's right, Comic-Con is going on. And you know who's not there? Us. Um, what are you talking about? I'm filing a live report from Hall H, San Diego Comic-Con, where I've been wearing adult diapers uh, and standing in line overnight to witness... The incredible announcement of, um, you know, I've forgotten why I'm here, and yeah. I've soiled myself. So, Guys, the family circus tent here at Pawtucket Comic Con is just killing it. <laughs> just killing it. They just announced that he's going to go into the back screen door of the kitchen, and then he's going to walk back and forth in the kitchen to tread mud all over the floor, and then he's going to walk around in a circle, and then he's going to walk back out the screen door of the kitchen into the backyard. This is gold, people. This is not the kind of thing that you see in your everyday internet experience. This is Comic-Con. Pete, Pete, is there any news about Family Circus Phase 3? Family Circus Phase 3? Maybe if you went to Narragansett Beach Comic-Con, but this is Pawtucket Comic-Con. Pawtucket Comic-Con, we're already at Phase 5. Okay, okay, okay. That's two more phases. <laughs> let me, let me, let's let's pause for a second. We are pooping all over San Diego Comic-Con and the hoopla over it. Um, I can't speak uh, no, for the rest. No, I'm just phrasing the various like, sub-regional Rhode Island comic I, I can't speak for the rest of the panel, but I still, I still enjoy going to New York Comic-Con, and I will be there in October, as I've been for the last uh, five years. This will be six years running for me. Um, but uh, I think that Matt Rather has a certain bone to pick with San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah, I love Boston Comic-Con. I've done comedy shows at Boston Comic-Con, and they were a blast. But Rather, San Diego Comic-Con is the big show, and that's the one that's closest to Rather, and he's the one who wants to talk about it. So we should defer to his judgment and not our lesser, yet more pleasant, it seems, Comic-Con. I don't know. Maybe it's just maybe it's just sour grapes because, like, all my friends are at, at L.A. Comic-Con. Not, not all my friends. My real friends are here on the podcast with me, you know? Champagne yeah. for my real friends and Indeed. real pain for my sham friends. Uh. <laughs> You're allowed to feel what you feel. It's okay to feel that rage about Comic-Con. It's not something you have to apologize for. Maybe it's just because, you know, everyone I know has a career and we have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't know. Look, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to hate on Comic Con too much. It, it's crowded, though. Like, and I sort of don't. I don't see the point anymore, right? Like, the hasn't everyone uh, hasn't everyone given over the idea that there that this sort of services a subculture that is a geek uh, quote unquote geek subculture? Because I don't know what that even means anymore. Geek. Don't you watch The Big Bang Theory? That's where they hand out the pamphlets every I don't week. watch The Big Bang was. Theory because they haven't – those guys are like negotiating their deals right now. They, you know, there may be no more Big Bang Theory. The universe what? may cease to be created. Uh, the Big Crunch. Well, I always describe to the according to Jim hypothesis. So, <laughs> <laughs> Or is it the, the, the two broke chicks uh, uh, proposition or corollary? Uh, Two Broke Girls, that's what it's called. I don't watch a lot of sitcoms. My jokes are all outdated or wrong. Continue. <laughs> <laughs> I like, hey, just if you want to plug, if you're going to watch a multicam 
uh, show. I I don't know. You could do worse than two broke girls, which is kind of funny sometimes. Um, I mean, is ha- haven't we given up the idea that there is uh, that there is a geek subculture? It's also it's also so mainstream now, right? And like, why you know why do I do? Uh, why do I, you know, why why do I go, why should I go to Comic-Con when I can see everything that happens on Comic-Con? I have, like, literally an RSS reader full of the second anyone says anything at Comic-Con, it shows up on three sites, right? Like, the AV Club posts about it, the, the Hollywood Reporter uh, pop culture blog that I follow posts about it, Deadline Hollywood posts about it, the, the you know, and then, and then all the lesser copycat sites uh, post about it. It. Tom Hiddleston farted at Comic Con. You know what? Like, we have YouTube video, and everyone has like a cell phone video that they took. You can see. You could put together a like a Wachowski brothers like, or uh, they're just the Wachowskis now, uh, no longer brothers. Um, like uh, Matrix, um, you know, 3D uh, moving camera, still frame moving camera shot. That CGI shot that involved, uh, you know. Um, hundreds of cameras taking a shot from different angles. You could do that now just with the, the footage that everybody has at Comic-Con because you have all these cameras all the time. You can, you, I, I don't know. I, I just don't get the point, guys. It, it just doesn't seem, like, uh, it doesn't seem like it's worth it to me to brave the crowds and the heat, right? Like, you know, Southern California, folks, it's a desert and it's in the middle of a, like, a pretty horrific drought. It is unpleasant out here. Just saying, don't don't visit, <laughs> don't come. Uh, we, you know, why why would a person put up with with such indignities as these? I, I, you know, honestly, I don't know. I don't know. In order to get a bunch of press releases acted out for you, in order to get like the press releases in audiobook form, <laughs> like it it doesn't uh, it doesn't. It uh, doesn't add up to me. Um, I don't know. I have good friends who are going, who are at Comic Con, and and who will doubtless, doubtless, and with justification, uh, take me to task for the awful things that I'm saying tonight. But but here here's a question for the week. You know, uh, what what could possibly make it worth it? What announcement could be made at at a Comic Con? At a a con of any type, con uh, that that would make it worth it to brave um, the the crowds, the heat, the probably you know unpleasant uh, accommodations, the uh, uh, the jostling, the all night waiting in line, the you know I don't know all 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 this stuff that that attends going to. Uh, to a large pop culture convention here so that a bunch of multinational corporations can instruct you in what to be excited about. Whew. God, I'm feeling raw tonight, guys. <laughs> I, um, what, what could possibly make such a thing, uh, such a thing worthwhile? What announcement would uh, or event or spectacle or thing thing that you could be there in the flesh to witness uh could make it worth it uh to bear that 
you know, the sort of uh, unpleasant, the unpleasant conditions when you could just sit in your lovely air conditioned apartment, refresh feedly and uh, get all the news brought to you by the by the people who are paid to be there. I don't know. Pete Fenzel, what do you think? Well, if I could go to Comic-Con and if I could co-locate couple of machines there right there with me at comic-con i think the big thing that would make anything any sort of hassle or lines or, or any sort of issue worthwhile would be if federal reserve chair janet yellen showed up and announced a one percent hike in the federal funds rate because the <laughs> the 50 milliseconds that i would have between when that news came out of her mouth and hit my tympanic membrane of my eardrum or what have you, right? And I was able to hit a button on a computer. Like, the, 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 the tens of seconds of, of advance that I would have doing that over those people who have to read it off of social media or off tickers would net me millions, if not billions of dollars uh, in, in writing all sorts of swaps and options. I mean, it would just be a feeding frenzy. I mean, it would be a huge coup. Uh, if just if just the policy, I'm not even talking about long term interest rates. I'm just saying if that short term policy interest rate just made that small, you could have you know fifty, a hundred people who would want to be there from all from all over the world. Of course, they each have to co locate a giant mainframe computer with a direct fiber optic connection to either <laughs> New York City or Hong Kong. But I mean, you know, what is that relative to the hassle you usually go there to go to Comic Con, right? I mean, it's not like this Jiraiya costume is going to put itself together. <laughs> Right, like it's that's not like the green, you know, the green goblin doesn't just like jump out of the box and ensconce your body in its fabric and say like go forth and and uh, and cosplay. No, these things take work. Um, so yeah, so I think that something like that would make it worth it. Although, yeah, I have to really be in the room, and really the closer to her mouth I could be <laughs> with my hand on the mouse, really the more money that I would make doing it. So I'm I'm going to say the answer is high frequency trading inside information, insider information exploitation <laughs> would make it worthwhile. I don't recommend doing it uh, in, in particular if it runs in a conflict of interest with other clients that you serve, but I don't serve any client. I would just have this thing, just I've been just tinkering in the garage with my trading platform. Just like, you know, taking a little screwdriver to it, taking the back off, blowing the dust off, kicking the tires a couple times. It's just a hobby project. Um, and then, and then, and then, then everyone would appreciate my Jiraiya costume because um, truly I would be in sage mode. If I were able to corner, if I were able to slay the market in that manner, you're just a, you're just a high frequency day trader. Uh, well, you know, um, I mean, day night trader. I guess if I were more of an if we we're in a Rochimaru costume, I could be a night trader. <laughs> but with a Jiraiya costume, it's more of a day trader. Um, I don't think Tsunati works after hours, although people make jokes about it. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's more of an anime convention joke than a Comic Con joke, I guess. But you know what? This is all falling apart. So maybe you should move on to someone else who's thought of something, perhaps a sconch more relevant than what I have just suggested to you just now, which you should not do because it's probably illegal, but would definitely make you millions of dollars. I pu- I put everything in in comic index funds. Really? Yeah. You're you're a, are you a you're a you're a passive comic investor? Exactly. You just you just watch your Twitter feed and you wait for comic information to like go. You you figure that if you go out and look up information on specific comic book properties, uh, you will do worse at aggregating information and pleasure for yourself than if you merely sit back and let 
every piece of information go through your brain and whatever happens to settle out on balance will make you on average happier than you being an active seeker of comic knowledge. That's what that's more or less it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, then all you got to do is get those fees down, man. You know, (laughs) ain't it cool expense ratios are hitting the bottom. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Mark Lee. uh, They're Spider-Man funds. Spider-Man ETFs. Never mind. Last ETF joke. I'm done. (laughs) Yeah. No, don't just don't uh, don't ever read actively managed comics. Right. Because uh, those guys never even beat the market. Um. On average, let's uh, let's go on to Mark Mark Lee. Mark, what what Terminator related thing? Just guessing, just spitballing yeah. here. Uh, would you have to? Uh, is it is it Cameron teaming with Schwarzenegger? Uh, yeah, that would be a pretty good one there. Um, I, believe it or not, my mind wasn't going quite in that direction. Um, so I'm just going to throw out a few things here, just because I've I, I had a lot of time to think about this. Um, and I got to think I got some great suggestions. So along the lines of what Pete was describing in terms of sort of witnessing current events of the not so pop culture variety. How about like Pope Francis announcing that the Catholic Church supports gay marriage and would allow women to, um, uh, to, to, to become priests? How crazy would that be, right? I mean, all the, um, the Catholic fanboys and fangirls would be, uh, would, be, would, would be raving about that one, right? Um, you'd, you'd be like you would be witness to a schism in the church probably oh, at, at that yeah, moment. They'd be they'd be something. That's for yeah, sure. yeah. I, right. Okay. So that's one thing. Um, uh, let's see here. How about um, bringing a a clone of Michael Jackson uh, on stage uh, to perform dance moves and to sing? Um, and and because it's like if, if you want to make this something that's possible at Comic Con, um, you know, the, like there's often the big video game component of Comic Con, so maybe he's like a dancing along to one of those uh, uh, dance video games. Um, so, so there's that. Um, I, so, although I suppose um, bringing a clone Michael Jackson back would, would most likely occur first at like, oh, I don't know, the uh, what the Hollywood Bowl, um, some major large arena in the uh, Southern California area, rather than Hall H to San Diego Comic Con first. Okay, well, the thing that would really excite me. Um, and you were, I think, Matt, you were asking for something that was relevant, uh, like current pop culture. Uh, well, sorry, I'm to disappoint that. I'm really going for some sort of like Wing Commander virtual reality experience thing, uh, which isn't quite this sort of like, you know, sit in Hall H in an auditorium and, and, and uh, have things happen on stage or on a screen. So you, I'm thinking about like strapping an Oculus Rift headset on in a room of like hundreds of thousands or, or, or thousands of fellow pilots and engaging in some crazy, um, you know, space simulator action experience thing and afterwards like high-fiving your wingman uh and and, and trading beers all and you, of course you've worn your wing commander flight suit outfit um with medals from the various terran and kilrathi campaigns um and you would swap war stories and uh, and have that sort of experience that's what i would camp out from hall h4 so um if anyone's listening out there in comic-con and wing commander land if you can make that happen i'll, I'll be there <laughs> pete would you join me for that I, uh, you know what? I've, I can think. I might not have the heart of the tiger right now, but I could probably muster it in time. <laughs> so yeah, think, I, think, I, are you, you wait, Mark, wait a minute. Did you just choose me as your wing commander, wingman? Because that's like a sacred bond, dude. You had all these other choices. You could have picked Rather. You could have picked Blinky. You could have picked Maniac. You could have picked Paladin. Pete, right? like, Pete, Control One. 
Control one. I'm telling you to attack. Okay, so break, break just, and attack. All right. Yeah, yeah. For the for the rest of the podcast, I'm just going to um to, to speak to you in, in the form of keyboard commands. I'm really that's glad that that's how it works in the Terran Navy. <laughs> I'm really glad that you didn't use the keyboard command for maintain radio silence, which is <laughs> one of the Wing Commander radio commands that would have broken my heart. <laughs> beat, beat, con- control four. Return to base. <laughs> that was just go. Just go. <laughs> That was such an insult to do that to your wing. No, right? Just, just go home. Just, just, you're not worth it. Your parent, you go, go. You know, like go, go tell your wife your troubles. Right? You know, like you want to stay here, close. Right? Uh, Mitch and Murray don't have any time, and they got cat aliens up their butts. So, <laughs> first prize is a space Cadillac Eldorado. Second, <laughs> second prize is a space set of space, space knives. No, we're not. We're not going to do another car podcast. Come on. No more car podcasts. Can we do space podcasts? Can we always be always be um, comic conning? A, A always B B C comic conning. Always be comic conning. Always be comic conning. Um, Mark is uh, Mark. I think you're going in the right direction, which is that like it would have to be a, a rare experience. It yeah, something be- that you couldn't do. At home in your PJs, you know, watching YouTube videos on uh, on online of, of the trailer that yeah, like, they showed at in Hall H, or in any you know medium sized city with the addition of Meetup.com, right? Like you know, you can you can find other other people who are interested in in nerd culture. It's not. Uh, I mean, God, what is that? I, I, what do those? I don't even know what the words coming out of my mouth even mean anymore. Um. Listen, if there were an immersive theater experience, a la Sleep No More, you know, and uh, and it was it was an immersive, I don't know, let's say let's say immersive Hamlet, just to kind of go with the cliched one, and it starred uh, uh, Tony Award winner Mark Rylance and Benedict Cumberbatch. There, there's one for the for the you know geek culture crowd. Cumberbatch, 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 Cumberbatch. God, I'm incoherent tonight, guys. Um, <laughs> what if it started? Just, just what, if with it, what if it started Liam Helmsworth and uh, Terry Crews? Cumberbatch. Start, <laughs> Cumberbatch. It has to be Cumberbatch. Right. If it installed Liam Cumberbatch Helmsworth and Terry Cumberbatch Crews, I might I might consider it. Uh, and I were and I were uh, the sole audience member in this hypothetical immersive theater uh, production of of William Shakespeare's Hamlet, set probably in a post apocalyptic wasteland, uh, because what isn't these days? Then perhaps for that, perhaps. I would I would brave the crowds, brave the heat, brave the uh, the lines and things like this in order to uh, in order to be there. Um, but uh, other otherwise, I I just I don't know. I'll read about it on my Twitter feed. Honestly, I don't know. Do you think there's a meaning to the idea of geek culture anymore? Like, you know, other than other than the things we all watch. 
<laughs> well, we, right? I guess that, that reinforces the idea that since social media offers you the opinions of pre-selected people that you already agree with, that there is, you know, that outside of your own idea of yourself and your friends, there be dragons, right? There's nothing that's not geek because uh, you're served up your own known world as a marketable, targetable, snackable, shareable, sellable uh, piece of life content an eyeball, eyeball candy. But, uh, yeah, I think there are things that are not geek, Right, like uh, like there's a country fest happening down at Fenway Park right now, and that's probably not geek culture. Um, but when we say, does it mean anything? Does it does like is it a political statement? Is it a statement that has that bears the same sort of uh, dynamic potential for disruption and change? Like, no, it's a fashion, right? It's like a market segment, right? It's like uh, it, it has correlates with race and age. Uh, and education level and income level, and it's a place where you can roll out product. Right, um, and it's it's. Uh, I, I mostly I agree with you. I'm going to offer a slightly contrarian position just so we can have a discussion. Um, is there a, such a thing as geek culture? So that let me try to answer that first question and say that yes, insofar as geek culture can be defined as uh, people who enjoy, I'll call it speculative fiction. Right, you know, that broadly encompasses sci-fi, fantasy, superheroes, you know, all that sort of stuff. Right, uh, vampires, uh, paranormal, etc. Uh, people who enjoy uh, geek, uh, sorry, speculative fiction, um, and are highly enthusiastic about it. I think if you uh, describe geek culture in that way, uh, then you do draw out a market segment, um, which is uh, distinct from other segments, and uh, you know. Uh, well, it can be marketed to, so there's that, right? And then the sort of second question being, is it important? Um, does it uh, carry with it political weight and things like that? Um, well, uh, perhaps to be seen, right? Um, the next Occupy movement might be uh, powered by uh, uh, people who are super excited about this new Firefly MMORPG. Um, I don't know the answer to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's happening by the way there's a firefly mmorpg no with, I, re- I yeah with, i read with, about with, that yes. you see i i read about that on on the internet by not being at comic-con uh i was i was made aware through my through my lack of being at comic-con uh that that was happening yeah but it's it's i mean i don't know like uh i i think that 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 the idea of sort of niche culture or uh, niche geek culture, um, I don't know. Maybe it's an idea that's that's outlived its usefulness, right? Like, because because everyone does vampires now, right? Like everyone does comic books, uh, comic books now. I mean, to the point where there is a, a certain kind of uh, fundamentalism that that. You know, from the people who liked who liked it before before it was cool, uh, you know, which is, I mean, ironically, like the the whole idea of geek culture was that it was a sort of welcoming home for people who were excluded somehow from the mainstream culture, and that it it's now, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, become a hotbed of the same sort of shibboleths and and uh, um, authoritarian. Uh, you know, the types of exclusion that uh, 
uh, that it was originally kind of meant to kind of meant to escape. But I guess that happens with everything all the time. So so we shouldn't really be surprised. Um, but it's it's there still is a there still it's still narrativized as being something that's outside the mainstream. Um, and, and I mean things like, I mean things like comic book characters or, you know, superhero, superhero properties and like caring about things like this, uh, when, when economically it, it has become the mainstream. I mean, it's the, the goal of every movie studio to have like, not just a a franchise, not just like. I don't know, Indiana Jones or Star Wars or something, but the thing that Marvel has done, where you have sort of multiple characters who can sustain multiple movies, uh, you know, and then sort of come together for a kind of universe movie. And who knows, this, this, the, 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 what's coming out this summer, Guardians of the Galaxy might do the same thing, right? It might be setting us up for a whole, for a whole nother, uh, uh, set of um, set of movies, you know, and and they're probably doing the same thing with the the DC universe now, though they they uh, are a little are a little late to the party. Um, like uh, this is these things are are now they're not subaltern, right? And they're not sort of uh, they're on every bus bench, they're on every billboard, they're they're publicly traded they're you know making they're sort of making billions of dollars and the idea that like the idea that you are expressing your uniqueness right by like you know by cosplaying as a character from a multi-billion dollar corporate owned franchise um it's it you know it's it's not that anymore maybe maybe it w- maybe it was maybe it was once and i don't begrudge anybody who uh i don't begrudge anyone the welcome that they found in 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 that community or the the um god i sound old don't i it used to be about the music guys that's my point it used to be about <laughs> the music um, Maybe you just need to confront that you're in a different market segment that needs to get targeted different products and services. Oh Jesus! That yeah, I'm, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting old. Is what you what you're saying is that I'm old now, right? Well, yeah, but that's okay because they make geek culture for older people too, like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie that's coming out, right? Is that that's <laughs> <laughs> can't wait. Guys. Oh, oh man! Oh my God! Yeah, they no. figured that by now you'd just be like you know watching children's television and not actually watching this stuff anymore. Yeah, right. It, well, yeah, sure. It's my my failure to reproduce, is I guess, is I guess not what... for lack of trying. Hey, oh, <laughs> uh, <anyway. laughs> sorry. I'm just saying you're a very masculine man. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It, it... Hey, I know another masculine man. I'm very familiar with him. Yeah, is he a uh, is he a, a Greek god or uh, or? Uh, well, according to legend, he's a demigod. Right. But who knows? Who knows what is the boundary between legend and reality? What is myth? What is man? What is identity? Who is Dwayne the Rock Johnson? <laughs> All these questions and more are answered in Hercules, which is a glorious movie. Also, the question: Can the Rock flip over a horse? Is answered. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is yes 
Uh, and he can also, with just masterful aplomb, deploy the movie's lone, uh, the PG-13 movie's lone F-bomb in just spectacular and hilarious fashion uh, shortly after flipping over said horse. Um, but I saw his Hercules today, and it was great. Uh, and it was really, really good. It's very schlocky, and there are parts of it that are very budget and cliche. Uh, but it's, like, super smart, and it's not at all what I expected it to be. Uh, and I did want to talk about it a go little bit. On, yeah. Go on. Go on. So the idea behind the Hercules movie is, it's, it's, is that Hercules has like a PR guy. He has like a press secretary <laughs> who is his nephew, his, his, who's Aeolus, right? All the characters have names from Greek mythology, but they're all different characters than they are in Greek mythology. Just t- it, all t- it takes place in like the 6th century BC, which is about a thousand years after you would date the, the, the legends of Hercules if if you were to track them backwards from the Trojan War era, as we've sort of determined from Hisserlik and the Mycenaean era and all that other stuff, right? Uh, so, which is that, like, so this is all happening around the, before Alexander the Great is where this is set in the sort of warlord uh, areas of Thrace, north of, of uh, Peloponnesus and ancient Greece. And, and Hercules has a PR guy and a hype man who tells everybody all the stories, right? And about, all, oh, he was a, he's the son of Zeus and he slayed the Hydra and he killed the Caldonian boar, and he, he wrestled the Nemean lion and all this stuff. And each time he tells the story of Hercules, like, you see, like, a flash. You see, like, it sort of flashes back, quote-unquote, back to, like, an expensive CGI scene of The Rock, like, fighting this monster, right? Like, and this all happens at the beginning of the movie, but it cuts away pretty fast uh, because it turns out that none of these things have, quote-unquote, actually happened <laughs> in this, quote-unquote, actual universe. And, and, and in fact, um, all of the monsters and all of the curses and all of the great feats are all like exaggerations and recontextualizations and also people communicating experiences that they had that they can't that they can't grasp or they they didn't quite understand um so like so, the, so like hercules came and plunged someone's toilet and that that became uh, cleaning the augean stables in a single yes, day something like that like he <laughs> like he dug a canal rather than that he rerouted the river you know with his own brute strength right um it, it's that um the, the big example they give in the movie is uh the Hydra is, in fact, not a big snake. They show him fighting the big snake with many heads, um, but they then have him show up later at King Eurystheus. King Eurystheus, by the way, played by Joseph Fiennes uh, with golden, curly, like, long hair. Uh, This movie has tons of wigs, just blows the door off the wig industry uh, is this movie. It's redonk. Uh, and Joseph Fiennes is just slathering it on thick in his role as King Eurystheus. But The Rock comes back to King Eurystheus and has a sack full of heads. And he opens the sack and you see that all the heads are dudes that have like snake head hats. Right? And so the idea is the Hydra was like a gang, right? And so every time you cut a half a head of the Hydra, two more would come. It's implied that this means every time you killed a member of the Hydra gang, other members of the Hydra gang would show up, and they were thus seemed to be unstoppable. But And they lived in this swamp, and Hercules went in, and Hercules doesn't do it alone. He has a posse. Hercules has a posse, like <laughs> Shepard Fairey and Andre the Giant, right? And his, his, potry, his posse is Autolycus, who is played by Rufus Sewell, who... 
has Rufus Sewell had corrective surgery on his lazy eye or something? Because he did not have a lazy eye in this movie. I know he usually has a lazy eye, or at least he did back in Dark City. Uh, but it's an all-star cast. Rufus Sewell, Ian McShane, uh, this other guy, this other lady. <laughs> I don't know. Um, and, uh, and, and they're just like – and so they ride with Hercules, and he's basically a mercenary. And his labors are like tasks that the kingdoms that retain him have sort of sent him out to do. Uh, and the movie is about him showing up in – Thrace and being hired by the Lord of Thrace, who's played um, by uh, the same guy who played a very similar role in Snowpiercer, um, which is, uh, what's his name? Is it John Hurt? I don't even know what his name. That's probably wrong. But it, uh, oh, yeah, John Hurt. That's it. Uh, John Hurt plays him, and uh, and he's hired to sort of help suppress. A, well, you know, he's hired to help stop a, a, a brigand who's like who has an evil sorcerer who's teamed up with the centaurs to like raid the countryside, right? And they have these cool shots of like of like human figures and horse bodies with the sun behind them on the tops of mountains. So you look up and you're not sure whether it's actually a centaur or not. Like you don't know whether this guy is for real or not and whether, whether, uh, or whether it's just stories. Right. And so the movie is about, um, Hercules trying to figure out his identity and he's trying to come to terms with the death of his wife and children, which he's convinced he's responsible for despite the fact that, uh, that he was unconscious and he woke up and he doesn't remember anything and, uh, and there's just, there's like a lot of weird plays back and forth and it's also like very funny and it's, it's constantly making fun of itself um, definitely uh, gosh, like um uh, the the various troops who who get like, you get to wear, have the invincible shield of Hercules and you get to have the invincible sword of Hercules and someone is like uh, well if this armor is made out of the invincible hide of the boar how did Hercules cut it off of the boar and he's like he used an invincible sword right and it's like uh, oh okay all right I got it I got it um, yeah and so and so it, it, uh, it sounds like us nitpicking uh like the the, the in-universe logic of a movie right yeah yeah totally it's <laughs> it's like it's a movie that is it's it this is a movie that feels like your best friend right like it's like <laughs> it's movie is like it acts towards you as if it's like a close friend of yours and it's sort of constantly kind of correcting itself and apologizing for itself and like kind of making fun of you for watching it um and like you know it's it's just kind of buddying around um and yeah, and it's just it's uh, I mean, there, the the dynamic of it that's interesting is um, that it's a, a part of it is about demystification, and and this was the thing I wanted to bring up on the podcast because there's a trend uh, over the course of the last ten years of a whole bunch of action movies that are based on ancient Greek subject matter. I'm thinking about uh, mostly about Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans, Immortals, right? But also um, you can count 300 and 300 Rise of Empires as part of this general oeuvre. They pick it because you get to have these grimy guys with the abs and the armor and everything and you get to have big cgi monsters or big cgi battles which is something that you can provide in a movie these days and you get to pump it into the veins of like 14 year old boys which are is the target that you're going for with these movies um you know 14 you know to 20 to 25 and whatnot Um, but a lot of the a lot of these movies are about demystification and they're they're kind of about um they're about demystifying uh, a lot of them are about killing gods Right, a lot of them are about how the gods have caused humanity more trouble than they're worth, and thus a human hero who is sort of 
skeptical of the rules of society is going to go kill the gods, and that will make the world a better place. So a lot of something which is, I think, appealing to the sort of stridently atheistic subset of teenage boys, which if you know we travel the parts of the internet that talk about Comic Con, we've all run into. Uh, and it seems to be kind of pandering to them and their power fantasies, which is fine because pandering to power fantasies is the big thing that movies are all about. Uh, you know, if you count love as power, right? Uh, mass market movies. But um, and then if in the case of Three Hundred, it's like look at the opposite the decadence, the elaborateness of like the Persians versus like us who have very Spartan ideas and we're self-reliant and we're rugged individualists, right? Uh, who fight, you know, in uh, tight hoplite formations, but whatever. Um, and, uh, you know, we're very masculine in our, in our loincloths. There's a certain irony and hypocrisy. But this movie is also about demystification and it's also about kind of being responsible for the way that you see yourself. But it doesn't approach the subject matter from this place of really nasty certainty. There's just a nasty certainty that a lot of the protagonists in these Greek, ancient Greek-themed action movies have where they are absolutely positive that they know the right way that everything is supposed to work. And, and the things that they, they see around them are things to be slain, right? They're monsters to be slain. And it's the story of, like, the very single-minded hero who goes out and does these things. Um, and, and Hercules, The Rock's Hercules, Dwayne Johnson's Hercules, is full of self-doubt. He's heavily traumatized. He just wants to move away to the far side of the Black Sea and just not deal with any of these people anymore. His family's dead. He probably thinks it's his fault. Um, but every time he gets into these situations, his talent, his charisma, his PR, his hype man's ability to get people behind him. And as we discover, his, like, abnormal physical strength, like, his very abnormal... Like, it says, like, oh, Hercules is just a story, except that the story is, like, impossibly strong by human standards, right? Like, the real man is still, like, he's he's still kind of a comic booky kind of character, right? Because he's, he's, like, flipping horses and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, but it's, like, it approaches... He, there's things that... There are, like, prophecies that happen in the movie, but they're prophecies that don't... that only sort of come true, and we don't know what they mean, and Ian McShane delivers them all with sort of a wry smile because he's this prophet warrior who sees the future, but he, like, you know, he's just very smart. He's, like, very very sly about it and he's very charming he, uh, can yep. we just can I break in for a second i'm so glad to hear that that these prophecies are delivered with a bit of a wink and a nod oh, because yeah. um based on what little i knew about this movie i like would have bet large sums of money that this movie would have said that there was a prophecy that a man born of a god and this would come and save the people and this that and the other but you're telling me that's not the case. There's not a prophecy that Hercules is going to come save everyone because no. he's the chosen one. There's like a prophecy of a lion and a crow over a field of bodies. I think at one point Ian McShane says, you know, the, the gods are great on, on the basics, but they're not good at specifics. <laughs> <laughs> Don't give him any specifics. They just sort of tell him vague things. The th- his character is cool. The supporting characters are like cool character designs. Like his character is cool because he's foreseen. I think this is based off of a, of a radical comics comic series. Right, it's like a small print, or not small print, but like a kind of a niche comic book series. Is to be fair, but he's a prophet who's seen the day of his own death, and thus thinks until that day arrives that he's invincible in combat, right? Um, and, and so, and the movie is, a, and part of his plot is like, well, he he's going to approach this day, and it's going to happen, and is is it going to really happen, or is it not going to happen? Is the prophecy going to come true? Um, but uh, but yeah, it's like, oh, you know, I see I see a lion and a crow in the flames. It's like Melisandre, Game of Thrones kind of stuff. Um, but there's no no real sign that any of it comes true most there's like there the, one of the more satisfying things about the movie is there's a point where they break down where autolycus uh breaks down 
Daltalkis is like the rocks, is like the Hercules' childhood friend. He's the guy played by Rufus Sewell. And he's telling the princess that they're trying to help uh, the story of, of how Hercules is said to have murdered his family. Right? And it's like, well, this is what the story is. And then it's like, well, what actually happened? And he's like, we don't know. We don't know. And that's, that's a huge place for this movie to live in, right? Which is just like, these stories emerge largely because we don't know what happened. And, it, and it's a way of addressing and, and sort of assimilating uh, our, our sense of wonder and bewilderment at like the vastness and unpredictability of the world, mm-hmm. right? And, all, and all, I mean, yes, the inexorability of fate, but much more so than that, just the way that we don't really understand what's happening to all of us. And that's, and that's one of the big things that the stories provide, because the stories aren't just bad. Like, the story also gives us Hercules, right? The Rock's Hercules is a heroic figure, even if he knows that his story is, like, quote-unquote, not true, right? Like, um, it's, it's still treated as something that could potentially positively influence people. Uh, there's a really interesting character who's a heavily traumatized axe fighter who hasn't who is like rescued who's found by Hercules on the battlefield as a child and is like just kind of brain damaged and doesn't talk he has like aphasia or something uh, and it's heavy PTSD like he has to be chained up at night because he has night terrors um, but it, you get the sense that like Hercules is the only guy like the myths of Hercules and being with Hercules has provided him some measure of peace and fulfillment, which is just really beautiful and sad, um, but also like kind of affirming, right? Because it's like, well, the Hercules is a good guy, you know. Like even if he didn't really kill the lion, you know, even well, he killed the lion, but it wasn't a super lion; it was a regular lion, right? <laughs> but like, it's still a spirit, and like this, you know, there's something up in there that still matters, right? And. and uh, it's just—it's pretty sophisticated. It's hard for me to nail down exactly what this movie's relationship is between truth and fiction. Yeah. So, I mean, the way that you're describing this, I—I I, I want to imagine that there's like a framing device for the entire movie, right? Is there like, um, you know, like a book opening or something like that, or, or or somebody telling the story of Hercules and inside of that story then has these myths with the stories? Um, yeah, it, it's 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 in the form of a prologue and an epilogue. There's there's okay. a prologue yeah. there's a prologue where you see the uh, the labors of Hercules. There's like a montage of the labors of Hercules, and then there's an epilogue. And, and rather would appreciate this epilogue because it is in the proud tradition of uh, of English language theatrical epilogues that explain what just happened in the movie that you just saw, but doesn't exactly get it right, right? It sort of tells you the story. It tells you the lesson that it thinks that you're going to want to take away from all of this because you will be con- – otherwise, certain people will be concerned that the audience would have understand what happened, right? Like there's this tradition in English literature of like someone coming out at the end of the play and saying like this was a play in which we found that love conquers all. And even though we may have troubles and tribulations, if we uh, seek out true love and are true to ourselves and our conscience love will conquer all and everything will be good thank you for coming to play everybody have a good night except it's in verse it's like a poem right and there's like a a big tradition of those kinds of things coming at the end of plays um or musicals or whatnot or whatever kind of format you're talking about but in a lot of the more complicated plays where the message isn't really all that clear-cut about what the play is about the epilogue can often be very clear-cut right where it's just like you know this is a story about how love conquers all and you're like wasn't that person assaulted? You know, like that wasn't, they weren't really in love. They just got married for the house, right? Like, uh, like that sort of thing where the epilogue is sort of purposefully overly comfortable. And this movie kind of nods to that as well in, in mm. the course of the epilogue where it's like, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is what happened and this is the lesson to take from it. But I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> like that's kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of the message. But, um, 
but yeah, I mean, if anybody saw this movie, I'm really excited to talk about this movie, and I've gone on about it for quite a while already, and I know you guys haven't seen it yet. Um, I encourage you to see it. I encourage, if yeah. you like, the, the costumes look really stupid. I don't say that much. Everybody, <laughs> like, people, like, soldiers walk in, and they're wearing stupid hats, and everything looks very, like, budget and thrown together, and there's a bunch of continuity problems, and a bunch of the things that people do don't make sense. So don't get, don't think that this is, like, actually a good movie. Like, this is not, like, a tightly tuned spaceship movie because i'm not allowed to talk about cars anymore this is not like a ferrari spaceship space ferrari this is like a very charming kind of like space cavalier it's, let me put it this way it's a movie starring the rock well yeah but sometimes right? the rock is is misused and sometimes uh but i guess the rundown is good it's just i, I say that in a good way in the best possible way oh yeah yeah, yeah. The rock and that it, it is it is carried by his enthusiasm i presume that it is carried by his enthusiasm his physicality um, and, and that just unique quality that he brings to uh, to the screen, right? Uh, I would, I mean, ironically, I would say not really. Uh, I would say that the supporting cast is actually stronger than not physically stronger, but <laughs> like because he can like, flip a horse after yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Ian McShane probably carries the movie as much as anyone uh, as just being sort of like the voice of the sort of voice of reason slash like entertaining guy. Um, there is definitely is a time where he like Ian McShane comes out in a chariot and rides it out into the middle of a battle and then just like pushes a button and blades shoot out of the sides of the chariot and he just starts clotheslining hundreds of people and he's just like whatever you know I'm doing this thing this is great I'm loving it uh, it's just it's sort of it's those moments when you kind of realize one side of what you're watching <laughs> and uh, the other side is is when they're sort of musing about myth and fate and all that stuff. Hey, so uh, let me bring up a different angle on this. Um, and remember, a few weeks ago, we talked about us rooting for Tom Cruise. Or we wanted Tom Cruise to get a win because we were, yeah. you know, we had some, um, we, we had positive feelings for him. We were pulling for him, right? Um, I, I definitely feel that way for The Rock as well. Mm-hmm. I appreciate uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I appreciate uh, his his unique uh, talents. Um, but I, I, I'll say that I was kind of actively not pulling for. I was rooting against Brett Ratner. Oh, so like kind of the, the, those two things evened each other out, canceled each other out. I was rooting for The Rock, and I was rooting against Brett Ratner, the director of this movie. Um, did Pete? Did you have any sort of uh, feelings for or against Brett Ratner going into this? And did that color your your viewing of the movie in any way? I didn't remember who he was. Uh, Probably and for th- the best, right? <laughs> Should I remind I was- you who he was? And then I looked him up afterwards. Yeah. And I saw that he's the guy behind X-Men 3. Yeah. And I'm probably the biggest fan you're going to find of of blue Harry Kelsey Grammer in a pinstripe suit at the Pentagon. So uh, <laughs> I know that other people think that it was ridiculous. But I really – I mean that movie is, again, pretty bad. But there are parts of it that really charmed me. Um, Rush Hour 2 is solid. I like Rush Hour 2. I love Rush Hour. Money Talks and Rush Hour are both really good movies. Um, I mean, looking through his catalog, I mean, maybe you guys don't like Rush Hour. Uh, that's possible. I know Movie 43 that he's part of is, is a disaster. Um, but, uh, I mean, do you guys have feelings? I mean, I know you saw Tower Heist, right? I saw um, Tower Heist and wasn't particularly impressed by it. Let me just put it this way. Like, um, he has a reputation for um, certain hack jobs like X-Men The Last Stand. Right. Um, and in addition to that being, uh, how should I put this, a bit of a douche? 
But this um, movie yeah, that's he has about, a super this movie is about douchey hack jobs. Like this is a meta movie about hack job storytelling. <laughs> right, where the, the hacking cool. of the invincible sword, right, yes. is a metaphor <laughs> for the hack job of yes. you know of a, yes. a writer uh, of a writer or director who who is a hack. How do you cut through this plot with adamantium claws? Right, that's how you do it. Um, yeah, is he like fallen from grace, or was he never in grace? Did people not think of this as a person who was in grace? No, I mean Brett Ratner's like a billion dollar director. He's just one of these, you know. I don't know. He, he. I guess he kind of had a reputation as being a frat boy. Um, oh, but we're. I don't know. We're we're doing one of the things that that annoys me about so called geek culture, or at least its journalism, or at least its manifestation on the internet, right? Which is that we're sort of talking about. Uh, we're, we're talking about these kind of we're talking about miscellaneous trivia instead of talking about the work, right? Like yeah. I, I wonder, and I'm not. I mean, no, no, I'm not uh, calling you out for this, Mark. But like, I, I wonder if if something something doesn't draw us away from the conversation that that uh, that Pete was having about about the movie to the conversation that that Mark instigated about. Um, uh, about Brett Ratner and his his reputation for kind of being a like a frat boy d bag. I mean, yeah, I, I guess. But I, I I was listening to a a podcast today. One of the podcasts I listened to is the Fitcast with Kevin Larrabee, which is ostensibly for personal trainers. I'm not a personal trainer, but I pay. It's also at about the 300 episode mark. It started around a similar time that Overthinking it started. And uh, crossover and I, I, time to do a yeah. crossover. And uh, and they had Lou, Lou Schuler, who's a famous writer of, of fitness books, was on the podcast, and he was talking about the phenomenon of getting fitness information. So, fitness internet fitness culture is very similar to internet geek culture in that people just cannibalize. It's just basically like all it's all sharks eating each other's flesh, right? It's just like dozens and dozens of people crammed into an infinite space that seems to have very small walls, right? Just like feasting on each other's misery, right? Just and say, telling each other that everything that they're doing is wrong and everything they like is bad right and just like being like you know super hyped every instant about something different yeah it, it sounds like um fanboys of smartphones right android yeah versus yeah Apple. and i mean he, he did a lucia did a pretty good deconstruction of internet uh fitness fanboyism and but one of the things he said was one of the problems with reading about internet fitness is that at the end of the day you end up with 250 puzzle pieces and you sit down to put together a puzzle and then you what you don't know is that they are pieces to 75 different puzzles Right. And that like because you've been constantly like getting these individual pieces of information, you have a tendency to assume that they have a relation to one another that's meaningful. And and in the case of this might be different in the case of of, uh, comics and and geek culture than it is in the context of fitness. But in the context of fitness, it might be important because you hear something in the context of, say, like, say this person, you know, is deliberately on a low-carb diet and ends up, like, reading something about sweet potatoes, right? And then you read something else, and this person is on, like, a a high-carb diet, and you read this different thing about sweet potatoes, right? And it's like, well, which one's right? Like, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Well, no, you're putting together different puzzles, right? Like, there's different goals. Like, there's different heuristics. There's different ways of asking questions. There's different kind. Not even are there different doors for your keys, but there's different kinds of doors, right? Some keys are big iron keys that you have to turn. Some are levers that you pull, right? Some are thumbprints, right? And so like when we're talking about geek culture, uh, there's all these sort of little conversations. And so there is the conversation of like, 
Okay, so Brett Ratner being a frat boy douchebag. To me, I think of this. I think of this as sort of celebrity news that we hear about the real life behavior of creative professionals and the conversation about how we ought to feel about the work of creative professionals based on what we know about what they behave, how they behave, right? And the idea that we should advocate for or against their work as a way of kind of politically controlling their real life behavior or setting standards for real life behavior, right? The idea is that yeah. like. Yeah, right. Like, we had like, a well, lot of conversation about this, the Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And exactly. all the, the crazy stuff that happened to him at the end of his gubernatorial uh, stint. Right, 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 right. Um, now, and then the quiet, okay, and then, so in that context, okay, I understand what you're saying. We could have a conversation about whether Brett Ratner's frat boyishness uh, is something that ought to make us more or less likely to. For, to support the Hercules movie, I tend to think that there you could you could construct a narrative as I sort of did, where the Hercules movie is kind of about being a, a frat boy storyteller, uh, right? And and sort of like if you want to understand it, uh, if you want to sort of see somebody kind of making fun of himself a little bit for it, uh, nobody is is belittled more in this movie than the PR guy to Hercules, which is you could see perhaps as like a Brett Ratner figure potentially, unless he sees himself as Hercules, in which case he's a douche, but. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, but it's like um, you could you could build that narrative. There's a relation between the experience of the movie and this. Uh, for me, but you can I don't I don't know. Um, I don't I find it very hard to feel like I'm talking about everything that matters about a work of art at the same time. Uh, this is one of the reasons that I always when our in our TV recaps I always try to start with one scene in the TV episode. Those of you who listen to the TV recaps know that I like to have everybody on the panel identify this one scene from the episode that for whatever reason is their gateway to interpretation of what the episode is about, what, how they feel about it, what they think about it, what's going on in this episode, so that you have some, because there's so many dimensions that you could approach it from, right? Like, I could say, what's it, name a historical moment that this, this movie is related to. You could talk about this movie as a commentary on Alexander the Great, because over the course of the movie, uh, phalanxes are developed as a military technology, and there's a, there's a tension in this rock, Hercules movie, between individual polis style city-states and kind of large overland Hellenic empires, right? And these are two things that are in tension with each other in this movie. So we could talk about it in that historical context, right? Or we could talk about it in the context of the dialogue. We could talk about it in the context of The Rock's career, right? Like, where, how is Hercules different from the Scorpion King? He seems older and wiser and less half of an animal, right? He's, well, he's half a god, but he's not really, right? Like, um, there, there's a difference, you know, like we talked about Tom Cruise in Edge of Tomorrow being a little bit more vulnerable and perhaps a better actor uh, in that movie than in some of his past movies. But I can't talk about all of them at the same time, right? Like, and, yeah. and I feel like one of the things I resent about the, the, like the, the Brett Ratner stuff is that uh, there are certain sorts of topics where I feel like people are more likely than other sorts of topics to really forcefully exclude the discussion of any other topic. Right? It's like, well, you have a moral imperative not to talk about The Rock's career in the context of this movie because you have to talk about the, the social behavior of the director. Right? Um, and that's not, what's happening. that's not what's happening here, but that's sort of my general... That ties it all together with what Matt was saying. So there's my rant on that subject. Bah! Mark, did you see a movie this week? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I too saw a movie with a muscle-bound hero directed by a deep... No, I'm not going to go with that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I mean, this we're, we're probably coming up on the, on the end of the of the show, but I do want to put in a quick plug for Boyhood, mm. um, which is, I, I believe is it. Okay, in all honesty, is a very different kind of movie from Hercules. It is perhaps as different from Hercules as you could possibly get. 
um, in that. Um, oh, let's see here. What's the log line for boyhood? Does anybody know it? I'm looking at the IMDb page, which boy, is why I know. Uh, boy grows up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> boy survive. Yeah, boy survives childhood. More or less, right? Uh, okay, let, let me just put it this way. Um, and there are no spoilers. It is, uh, Boyhood is a movie that's kind of impossible to spoil in that it, uh, it, it, it does a lot of things. Okay, let me back up. For those of you who aren't aware of Boyhood, it is this remarkable achievement in filmmaking in that uh, it was filmed over 12 years with the same set of actors, including a boy who grows from the ages of uh, what? Uh, 5 to 18, according to IMDb. Yeah, um, we see him grow up from a, from a young boy in, into a teenager, uh, into a young adult, um, and it's shot with the same cast over 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 twelve years. Um, it's a remarkable story. It's a remarkable achievement that they're even just able to pull it off at all. It's great. You should all go see it. Um, and uh, the, the, one of the, the remarkable thing about the storytelling aspect of it is how almost uneventful it is. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like you know, movie like dramatic like things happen. Um, there are fights. There are conflicts, um, but uh, like the, the sort of traumatic things that we sort of come to expect from movies by things like Hercules flipping over a lion, or, uh, those, those things don't happen. Wait, New York doesn't, doesn't get blown up in the course no, of No, okay, let's, let's put it this way. This, is the, this, is, um, this might be the Downton Abbey moment for, uh, for this movie. There's a scene where these teenage boys are hanging out, they're drinking beers, they're messing around. Um, and the way that they choose to mess around is that they're in this sort of construction site and uh, the boys decide to start playing with a circular blade that's not attached to a saw or anything like that. They're like using it like a ninja star or a throwing knife and they're throwing it at a board. Right. And the whole time you're like something horrible is going to happen. Right. Because that's what happens in movies. Horrible things happen. And this is all about like, and you in know, Robert Frost poems too, with circular saws and children. Yes, <laughs> the, buzzsaw, the buzzsaw snarled and rattled, rattled and snarled. Um, and, and do you know what happens? I'm going to guess. Saw? I'm going to guess nothing. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's just uses a, as a, it, it, they, they throw the buzzsaw around and they sit around and they uh, drink beers and they talk about the sex that they may or may not be having or probably aren't having. Right. Um, this is kind of like the opposite of uh, a Chekhov's circular blade. In that uh, if you have a circular blade that is being thrown about um, in the first part of the scene, it actually stays lodged in where it was last thrown by the end while the boys talk about not having sex. Michael Bay's Three Sisters is criminally underrated. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Bad Boys, except we're they going, never invade Cuba. Yeah, we're going to go invade Cuba. We're, someday we're going <laughs> to invade Cuba. We're totally going to get in our Humvee, drop from a helicopter, and go invade Cuba, guys. It's totally going to happen. It's totally going to happen. And Martin Lawrence is going to become a scientist. <laughs> like, Oh, man. Frustrated dreams. What can I say? Will Smith has a cherry orchard that Megan Fox works in, and you're constantly looking at her butt at the cherry orchard. That's what that's the Michael Bay Chekhov's gun, right there. So I mean, it's, to, to tie everything together with the you know with the rooting for Tom Cruise, rooting against Brett Ratner, this that. Like, have you heard anything about this movie that causes you to root for or against it? Like, is it do you, do you approach this and say like this is a gimmick and I'm rooting against it in some way, or do you like are, are there? Are, the people that are attached to it or the construct construct of it causes you to root for it. Well, so I um, mean, I, I have heard, I, I mean, I've read, uh, like I've read stuff about the movie that calls it out for being, I don't know, pre- pretentious maybe. Um, though I don't know what it would be pretending 
right? Um, but uh, but then also like yeah, I mean I I do I don't know it it sounds interesting to me. It sounds like a really unique, uh, not not really unique. I mean unique means one of a kind. I, you either it, are or it, you aren't. Yeah, it is one of a kind. And as I, far as I know, nothing of this scale has ever been attempted before. Yeah, or certainly. I mean certainly not at the moment, right? Like it's it has a, a kind of scope and ambition that i am you know that i am really supportive of and so i uh to that extent i'm definitely rooting for it you know um yeah there's an interesting backstory about the amount of risk that they took going into this that everyone was aware of um and in fact i think uh, richard linklater and ethan hawk both of their fathers um worked in the insurance industry and there's actually a reference to actuarial science <laughs> in this movie and in the end uh, they've talked about how if like you do the actuarial tables on this movie um it's just a bad idea like investors are talking about them like how do we know this movie is going to be a success and they, they respond with we don't know um and that type of risk taking um i think uh we can say without reservation really should be celebrated um because it is so rare in mass entertainment these days. Yeah, I mean, the main reason that I would root against a movie that's called Boyhood that does this um, is because I, I tend to, I have kind of a chip on my shoulder about the way that Boyhood is portrayed in the popular culture, kind of as a, as a sort of a coherent time of like sort of clear conflicts and also of kind of childishness. Uh, and my and this is colored by my sort of own experience of boyhood as being fairly tumultuous and full of a lot of um, a lot of kind of violence and, and implication of violence. Uh, like when I think of like boyhood stories of boyhood that I feel like kind of more capture what I wish the culture knew more about. It's more stuff like the chocolate war, right, or even like the outsiders, right, where it's just like the sense of the the sense. I think that people, when people say girls mature faster than boys, one of my my bones to pick is that, like, at the time when everybody thinks that the girls are maturing and the boys aren't, there are things that are happening to the boys kind of behind closed doors that are very different than what were happening to them in childhood and, and that aren't broadly acknowledged or understood by the culture because they're seen at that time as still children. That's really um, interesting. That's really interesting. What do you mean? I mean, what do you mean by that? Like, well, I mean, what like, makes like, sense of a thing like that? Uh, the, a big instance of something like that would be is um, I would think of uh, well I had a friend and I'll, and the friend will remain nameless right um, where when I was in in middle school uh, he had a um, he, he had a, a sister right and who, who also knew everybody and um, it, it became a thing among a large group of the friends to speculate about uh, and out loud and I'm saying you know speculate right and to harass him about uh, the two of them doing various sex acts to each other in the shower right uh, and they got very lurid and, and kind of uh, colorful in the description there were songs that people made that they sang over the course of years right like that were that were kind of like a, a ritual as it were and they were all kind of posed at this guy as sort of a constant intimidation right um that there was this implication that there was this incestuous relationship between him and his sister right uh and and i mean i think there were certainly fights that were related to that sort of thing but seeing that as a subtext right and seeing this you know is starting we're talking about kids that are starting at like 13 you know like 
you know, not so much as young as 12, but like, you know, people who don't really necessarily look that pubescent yet, who are like sort of like ganging up on these kids and coming up with this. A lot of it is the sort of uh, the 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 um, narratives around really explicit, explicit sex acts uh, that that uh, are that children are talking about and the way that they employ obscenity uh, and vulgarity and um, and sexual language. Uh, like the idea that you shouldn't be saying the F word around children, around people who are like 12 or 13, is kind of absurd because they're certainly saying it to each other. I mean, yes, maybe an individual kid might not, but it's something that's being said. And now, of course, out there right now, I'm sure they're all watching hardcore pornography on their iPhones, right? Like, well, right, yeah, not you can't has get, an iPhone. You can't open your email without, you know what I mean, without being confronted with it. Yeah. But like, days. does the movie does the movie Boyhood, which by its very title presumes to explain boyhood, have a scene where he's like fourteen years old on the playground, like watching hardcore pornography? Right? Like, probably not. Is my well, guess. Pete, well, Pete. Oh, it does. Scene, oh, good. There's a scene in which um, uh, boys of uh, let's say like seventh grade or so are um, looking at or what? Or, I don't know if it's hardcore pornography, but they are looking at pornography on the internet. Okay. Um, there's a scene in which a an eighth grade boy. Um, is uh, the word the f bomb is being used to describe sex acts around yep. an eight year old boy, and uh, they joke about bringing whores over to f them. Um, yep. These things happen, you know. This is okay. like a pretty unvarnished um, uh, uh, portrayal of uh, young boys, young men. What do you want to call them? Growing up. Um, yeah. it, uh, it, it, it's, it, and it is remarkable in that regard as well. Yeah, that, that's what the movie would need to do to win me over. Is there would need to be beatings, and there would need to be a lot of like. Not just not just sexual language as sort of an exploratory thing, but as like a means of of intimidation and a means of kind of like social. Yeah, uh, yeah, social, yeah, yeah. Social that's that's there. That is so there. Yeah. Okay, good. Guys, you just you got to see this movie. <laughs> Please. <laughs> I mean, I know this isn't a review podcast, but like this is one of their most remarkable movies of of the century. <laughs> well, I mean, well, then, yeah, great. I, I would shy away from it because I don't I don't trust the culture to treat it this. Was, subject. It, it was better than the Lego Movie. What? Okay, we got to go. The Lego see Movie was the best movie of 2014 that I of, or of the, uh, perhaps of the century until I saw <laughs> the Boyhood. Oh, it was remarkable. I think that's. I mean, I don't know. I think that's really. Uh, I, that's really a good point. And I mean, I don't know, Pete, that you make about movies about about Boyhood. And I'm excited if Marky, if you say it, sort of clears the bar. I'm I'm excited to see it. Um, I and and I would I I guess it has something to do with the the fact that that the films are made the films are not made to be authentic to uh to children right like the the films are made to kind of re-narrativize the experience of growing up for people who are already grown up right and that that has to do with the economics of how movies are funded and who pays to go see them and who, you know, uh, who makes them and, and, you know, who, who is supposed to sort of benefit, who is supposed to sort of be edified by, you know, watching them. Um, and, and, uh, so the, the idea of movies about, right. The idea of movies about childhood are, um, uh, are meant to sort of comfort, Right to to sort of reassure uh, reassure people who are already grown up, and I think sort of reassure them that they're normal, you know, like that their experience is not, um, you know, somehow deviant, right? 
I, I was interested. There, I think there's a fine pine to cut between the reassurance that your experience is normal versus the reassurance that your abnormal experience is shared. Um, because I don't know if seeing if you have kind of a traumatic experience as a child and someone else tells you about their traumatic experience as a child and it's similar, I mean, I guess we could just, you could describe it as making it normal, but for me, the word normal has subtext there that kind of take the teeth out of the trauma of it, which I don't think doing that does. You know what I mean? Huh. Uh, I wonder whether, I mean, again, this, this, this is then going to sort of touchy-feely ideas of kind of vulnerability and perceived and attempted authenticity in art. Um, but this idea that, like, maybe you're not struggling to normalize things so much as to share them. Because um, if it's normal, it's not exciting, and nobody's going to tweet about it, right? Uh, normal. And no one's going to announce it at Comic-Con, guys. My 15-year epic uh, called Dog which is about a dog that sadly dies at year three, and then it's just blank footage, an hour and a half. <laughs> it's really sad. Oh. Wow. But I kept you turning can... on that camera with the lens cap on. <laughs> like, and just sitting there. At the what? At the pile of dirt with a balsa wood cross in the backyard where you... <laughs> Actually, dog. no, guys, it's the camera that died. I used the same camera. It's called camera, and it's a 15-year journey of a camera, and every year I take pictures with the camera but the camera breaks so it just goes blank and it's just blank for a long time um that's something that i feel like no movie ever really does which is like try to attempt death to try to attempt to represent the death of a thing by just simply playing darkness and silence for like a really uncomfortable period of time i'm sure art art movies have no doubt done this in spades or also like home movies that have been taped over incorrectly on other vhs cassettes (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) i always often feel like that would be the scariest thing like if somebody just jumped up from behind a couch with an axe and then the rest of the movie was just an hour of darkness um anyway sea dog that that's what's coming out soon <laughs> that's a free idea for you internet take that go go kickstart that you go kick it. yeah do your john cage that nonsense it's like john cage meets goth it's goth cage it's good stuff boyhood um, boyhood and then follow it with the sequel which is called manhood <laughs> which stars don draper as an ad executive Oh man! Yeah. Well, no. I mean, I I was about to to was about to say I sort of don't see a way of getting into a conversation about this without getting into a conversation about things like privilege, which I really don't want to get into a conversation about. So maybe we should just leave it there for this. You don't you don't have to have a conversation about everything all at the same time, right? You could you could pick different uh, facets. But anyway, anyway, you were saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. You're right. And I guess, I guess I want to. The, the point that, that I keep trying to make, and, and I know, uh, you know, I, I know that I probably don't, don't make it well because I'm hitting the box wine pretty hard by this point in the podcast. Uh, and also because no one wants to hear it from me because, you know, I'm a white dude from a wealthy background in a big city, right? Like who is a, you know, heterosexual uh, male 30-something. Um, Everybody wants to hear from you. That's why guys like you make all the movies because of the power of your story, your yeah. personal story. I mean, if you're <laughs> 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 many, many uh, years ago, a prophecy was foretold that that. You know, a white dude would that make a seven movie dragon about. balls would be found by a white teenager. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, oh, yeah, speaking of Dragon Ball, the kid in boyhood is a 
a huge Dragon Ball fan at the beginning. What? You didn't start with that? I omitted a very important detail in relaying the story of Boyhood to Pete Fenzel. You really, yeah, I you am, really I buried, am sorry. buried the lead on that one. His authenticity level is over 9,000. <laughs> I, I, uh... I, I've tried before and probably failed to make the point that's akin to what akin to what you said, Pete. That like um, not only about not only about the political implications of of our entertainment, but about the sort of political implications of our lives. Like we need a way of having of having more than one more than one conversation, right? And like it is. Um, it's not good when when you get into a situation where you're sort of insisting that only one conversation is legitimate, only one kind of conversation that you can have is is legitimate. Um, I suppose that's why there are 300 podcasts, 300, you know, however many podcasts there are, because that's that's how many conversations we can have about a thing. We're going to keep having conversations until we get to the number of conversations that it's possible to have about a thing, and then we're going to stop. No, and then we're going to go over that number, and then our scouters are going to explode, is how it's going to work. <laughs> Prince Vegeta style. <laughs> um, all right. What's going on on Overthinking It this week? Well, a lot of exciting stuff. There is a very special episode of the TFT podcast that's going to be released this week uh, with special guest Jordan Stokes. Um, I won't uh, I won't say what we're doing, but brush up on your German. There's a, a, a book club podcast that's going to be released uh, probably on Wednesday. We're continuing Slaughterhouse Five, uh, the summer of Slaughterhouse. Uh, that was one proposed hashtag uh, for our our thing. So uh, if you uh, are enjoying Slaughterhouse Five, or, or uh, if you are not yet enjoying Slaughterhouse Five, you still have time to jump on the bandwagon uh, because we are going to uh, we're we're only on uh, chapters three and four this week. And it's a very short book anyway. You could read the whole thing in an evening. Um, and that, uh, that is releasing on Wednesday. And there will be uh, comments. Uh, there will be discussion in the forums about it. Uh, the Overthinking It forums have been revamped to, to sort of put everything together. We had before, and I, and I gather it was a strategic error uh, on the part of me who designed them. Um, we had like... Uh, ultra hyper categorized forums where uh, you know where you could and I I just I'm sorry I just can't bring myself to say fora you know to describe um, to describe online discussion forums to describe what they are is that is that bad of me I don't know probably mm, nah it's it's fine it's it's at this point forums are so outdated as a primary internet communication medium right like. That the, That's the why technical... overthinking it is just now jumping on the bandwagon. <laughs> I love them. I think forums are the best. I like them a lot more than social media um, because you you know you develop you develop internal logics and rules. Like forums can have rules of courtesy that social media platforms rarely do because people come and go uh, less quickly, right? And 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 people kind of are more account. The reputation is worth more when you're with the same sort of fixed group of people for a long time. So yeah. I like it forums right exactly you gotta you know you gotta get your you gotta get your like karma points up over um that's something i i uh been meaning to implement i sort of haven't figured out a good way to do it but sort of karma karma style you know 
points, ratings of, of things like that. Um, we, uh, we're we're uh, reorganizing them. They're all now, all the topics, all the posts uh, are in one forum. So rather than having this, this hyper-categorized thing, there's one place that you can go to have your conversations uh, with the Overthinking It crew. Actually, there's two because there's one for everything and then there's another for the book club. Um, so, uh, check out the overthinking at forums. You have to, to register for an account, um, in order to post because we don't want, uh, we get enough spam stuff that we have to police and delete and whatnot without, uh, without just opening the floodgates to everybody. Um, but you know, I don't know. We, we, we hope you like it. It's, it's, uh, uh, honestly, not going to lie, it hasn't taken off. I think in a way that that our community is is capable of uh, having it take off, and so I'm I'm excited to see um, I'm excited to see uh, what might happen, uh, what the possibilities, what the potential is for um, for our forums. Excellent. That's that's my plug for that. How'd I do? Great. I like uh- it. Yeah. Your story will become myth, and myth will pass into legend, and legend will become um, a movie directed by Brett Ratner. The, uh, <laughs> the podcast uh, will become finished momentarily. <laughs> there will be another one in a week. Until then, uh, for all the things I've mentioned and for more, you can visit us on the web at Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve.